Amen. We will because of Christ. You guys can go have a seat. As you do, our four to six-year-olds can go ahead and be dismissed to their class. Teachers are in the back corner there waving to you. All right. As they heard their way out of here, you guys can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Malachi 3. Malachi 3. We're going to pick up our study in the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi 3, verse 6. Now, our passage today is about what everybody's favorite thing to talk about in churches. It's about giving, right? <laughs> talk about money and other things, right? And honestly, a lot of pastors don't like talking about this, and a lot of congregants don't like to hear about it. Um, but frankly, that's because we don't understand it well. Um, and we end up preaching it and teaching it and understanding it wrongly. Right? And because the reality is, when we understand rightly what our privilege of giving of ourselves to the Lord is, um, we should rejoice to hear this. Uh, and as a pastor, I would be remiss as a shepherd of you guys to, to let you miss this. Right? So, what we're going to do is, I'm just going to start and read the passage, because this is a passage that has been uh, mistaught many times. Uh, in, in a couple different ways. So I just want to get it out there for you and talk about maybe some of what you have heard from this passage, and then we'll tell you what it's really about. So Malachi 3, starting in verse 6. This is the word of the Lord. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statues and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, said the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down from you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. We pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We need it. Um, we do not think rightly about the world. We do not think rightly about ourselves and our things. Apart from your revelation, apart from your guidance, you created everything. You designed everything. You uh, alone know what is good for us, and uh, your design for our lives always leads to flourishing. So we need it, Lord. And I pray that you would help us this morning. Uh, we hear lots of other designs and plans and ways that we should handle things that are not true and do not lead to life, and we need yours. So I pray that you would help us this morning by your spirit, and we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Now, depending on your background, if you have heard teaching on this passage, you've probably heard it taught wrong in one of two ways. One way is that you may have heard this passage used um, to lay a burden on people towards a certain level of giving to the Lord through the church or to a ministry, right? You better give... X amount, usually 10%, right? A tenth comes from that word tithe. We'll talk about that in a minute, right? And so you better do that 
right? To, to make God happy, to, to keep him off your back, you better be doing this or else. It's a very threatening loading up of the people of God to do this particular metric of giving. And so that's one way. You might have heard that. On the other hand, you may have heard this passage emphasized in a different aspect, right? That, that this passage contains the secret sauce to get good things out of God, right? If you just give, right? If you just give him enough, then he's going to open the storehouses and you're going to get all the stuff, right? Whatever it is you want. It's money, things, emotional peace, right? So, so this one sounds different, right? These sound very, very different. The one sounds heavy-handed, harsh, threatening, do this or else. The other one sounds kind of pleasing, promising, kind of gives you this little shot of hope. Like, oh man, if I, just, if I just do this, then God's going to give me all the stuff. Of course, that only lasts until he doesn't because he doesn't actually say he'll do that. Right, these sound very different. One's harsh and frightening, the other's promising and helpful, but they, at the root, they err the same way. They have the same root problem. They shape the way that God relates to us through our performance, through our performative righteousness. We dictate how God relates to us by what we do in this particular area of giving. Whether it's by keeping his anger at bay or provoking him to kindness, the kindness we want, our good depends on how radically we give, right? We're the puppet master, right? And if we just pull the right strings with our giving, we can make God do what, he want, what we want him to. As different as they sound, they both boil down to that same thing. That is what you are given. And so if you're not getting what you want out of God, if God is not doing in your life what you want him to do, give more. Manipulate him further. Make him do what you want with your giving. Right? That is essentially what we are taught in either of these views. And it distorts our view of God, and it distorts the privilege that giving is actually designed to be. What's actually here in this passage, what this is actually about, is that this is a picture of a God who is perfectly faithful to his people and abundantly good. That's what's actually here. And this good and faithful God calls us to give not to change him or to extract something from him, like he needs something from us because he doesn't. Not at all. He calls us to give to shape us. Not so that we would change him, manipulate him, but to change us, to shape us, and ultimately to lead us into what is good for us. Giving is good. We're going to see that. And we should do it, but it has to be grounded in a right understanding of who God is and what he has done for us. Giving, giving, seeing rightly, is not about us getting something out of God, but about him working something in us. That's what we need to see today, church, and this is how we're going to get there, right? The first thing we need to understand is the context that these words are, are being spoken into, Right? We take these little chunks of scripture, which we need to do to process all, but we have to understand the context behind them, right? If we don't, particularly with this passage, understand the covenantal context of this passage, we will miss it. We will absolutely miss what it's about, and we will use it wrongly. Secondly, as we understand that, it's going to show us the need for a new and different covenant, right? Particularly one that comes to us in Jesus. And lastly, we're going to see how in the new covenant, 
how that new covenant shapes the way we relate, not just to our money, but all the resources that we have. Who we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us, transforms the way we think about our time, our money, our talents, our gifts. All of those things get reshaped based on what we know of God and what he's done for us in Christ. So that's the agenda. So let's get into, go back to this original passage, the original context. What's going on here when we read this text? If you guys remember historically, if you've been here for the rest of our series, uh, things are not good in Israel, right? They've fairly recently come back from exile, where they, um, they went into exile because they'd broken God's covenant, and he's brought them back. He's been faithful and kind and brought them back into the land. But things are not well there. They are greatly diminished. Um, they're oppressed by all the peoples on all the sides of them. They're poor. Um, things are not, not very good from a circumstantial perspective. And so part of what's fueling the whole book of Malachi is, is why. Israel's been speculating as to why things are bad, and they've come to some faulty conclusions. They've decided that things are bad for them because God does not love them anymore, and God has been unfaithful to them as his people. That's what they've decided. Because they look around at the other nations, and they're doing so much better, and we're doing badly, and we're supposed to be God's people. So God apparently doesn't love us anymore. We can't trust him, and so we're just going to look out for ourselves. And that has spilled out into every area of their life. They are worshiping wrongly. They're treating each other horribly. It has colored everything about them. Their view of God has. So they think the, the fault for their difficult circumstances lies with God. This is very closely connected with what we looked at last week about how God relates to injustice. Israel, at this point in time, believes God is unjust, that he loves, delights himself in wickedness, and is not bringing justice to those who deserve it. Right? They believe they're cursed because of all that is going on around them, and that this is because God has changed towards them. Now, they're right about one thing. They are, in fact, under a curse. They're right about that. Right? They are suffering and struggling because they are under a curse. But they have completely misunderstood who is at fault and completely misunderstood God's place in the whole thing. And God makes this very clear right from the jump, right? He leads this off by saying, for I, the Lord, do not change. This is hugely important for us, guys. This is fundamental to our understanding and view of God. Our God is immutable. Who he was is who he is and is who he always will be. He does not move and change. This makes him different from all other gods. He always keeps his promises. He will never be something different than he was before, ever. This is, if this was not true, we would have no grounds for our faith because it could be different tomorrow. This is a fundamental truth about who God is that we have to embrace and we have to know and cling to. And God knows that Israel has left this, right? He's saying this for a reason because he knows what's going on inside of them, right? They think God has changed. This God who you know, called Abraham and promised him a people and then brought people out, brought the people out of slavery in Egypt, did all these things. So clearly, this God is different now because look at us. Look at what we're going through. He must be different. All right, but this is, <laughs> that's not true, right? Where's the disconnect? Where's the disconnect between the way Israel sees this and what God is saying now? To understand this, we have to understand God's covenant with Israel. 
God's covenant with Israel is essential to understanding what's going on. Israel has forgotten it, right? Not forgotten that it exists, but forgotten what it says and forgotten what it means. And God has not, because he does not. Right? So what was this covenant? Right? We're not going to look at it exhaustively today. But a covenant is basically just a way of saying it. it's a formal way of defining a relationship, right? It has the requirements of both sides of the relationship, the stipulations that are there, the blessings that are promised for faithfulness, all these different components, right? And God established his covenant with Israel after he brought them out of Egypt, right? And he said, you will be my people, I will be your God. And because I'm your God, you're going to act in this particular way, right? And this is what we have in the Old Testament law. It's like, this is how you are going to relate to me as your, as your king, as your God. You're going to do these things. And when you do, I'm going to bless you in the land of Canaan, right? That's this, this promise of temporal blessing. I'm going to give you this land that's not yours. I'm going to give it to you. And I will cause you to flourish there as you are obedient and faithful to the covenant I've made. Right? But there's a, another side to the sword, right? I will bless you if you are faithful, but if you are not faithful you'll be cursed, right? But one of the places we see this, this is many places in the Old Testament, but in Deuteronomy 30, listen to these words from the Lord to the people. He says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, and you are drawn away to the worship of other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give them. This aspect of the covenant, we call, we call this a covenant of works. right? And what we mean by that is that means that the blessings of the covenant, the promises of the covenant, are awarded on the basis of works, on the basis of fulfilling certain requirements. And this is very clearly, the, the operating principle of this covenant is do these things and live. Don't do these things and die, right? Do these things and be blessed. Don't do these things and be cursed. There were requirements for Israel in order to be blessed under this covenant and to flourish in the land of Canaan. And if they rebel, they'll experience the opposite. Now, we know from the rest of our Old Testament that Israel has not been faithful. Right? They, they <laughs> had not, barely even received this law when they started breaking it, right? And started being unfaithful to the requirements that God had laid out before them. So Israel has suffered under the curses that she has earned by her unfaithfulness, right? That's what's going on here. So right now, Israel is under a curse, but it's not because God has changed or because he has been unfaithful. It's because they've been unfaithful. And in fact, the fact that they have fallen under a curse is a sign of his faithfulness. He has done exactly what he said he would do. 
And he's actually done it in the, the kindest, most gracious way. He has delayed and slowed and called them back and tried to offer them mercy as much as he can. But ultimately, he has been faithful to his covenant. The very opposite of the thing they accuse them of. They are suffering. They are under this curse. Not because of God's unfaithfulness, but because of his faithfulness in the face of their unfaithfulness. It's their unfaithfulness that is the problem under this covenant of works. God confirms in this passage that Israel is under a curse. In verse 9 it says, You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Israel feels this. They, They know this to be true, and they're right in realizing that. They can see the curse, but they cannot see their sin. Right? They cannot see their fault. And that the curse is there because of their unfaithfulness, not because of God's. It's not because God has become anyone different. He is just as faithful as he has always been to them. And this passage is God showing them that. Right? This passage is a call for Israel to repent. They're oblivious how unfaithful they're being. They think this is all God's problem. He's abandoned them. He's left them. He doesn't love them anymore. This letter is a love letter to call back his people to stop chasing the things that bring a curse on you. Choose life. Do what I've commanded you to do to receive the blessing. Stop doing the things that merit the curse. God's disciplining them, not destroying them. Right In that first verse, he says, I am God, I do not change. Therefore, you are not destroyed. Based on their failures, they have every right to not be a people anymore. The only reason that they are, that they have survived exile and come back to the land, is God's grace and mercy and his kindness to love and care for his people and to continue to call them to repentance even while they fall under his fatherly discipline. So this section is a call for them to turn from what has impoverished them and to turn to what gives life. And so I'm going to walk through the passage now briefly. He confronts them very directly by saying, hey, you have not kept my law. Flat out, you have not kept the requirements of the covenant. But he wants them to return so he can be towards them as a father and not a judge. Right? That's the relationship he wants with them. So he's calling them to return to him. When he calls them to return, now we see that the heart of the problem is is pretty deep. Because Israel's response is um, one of a dense and cold heart. He said, how shall we return to you? It should be blatantly obvious, right? They know the covenant. They know the requirements that God has for them. And they are just completely dull. And lackadaisical to what God has called them to do. They can, they're just in a malaise. They cannot see what an affront the way they are living is to a holy God. It shows their hardness of their heart, their coldness. It should be so obvious to them how they are culpable, but they cannot see it. They are blind. And so he makes it more explicit. He says, How you're saying? He said, Stop robbing me. Like, how do you return? You're robbing me. Quit robbing me. Do what you were called to do. And again, you see this coldness and hardness. How are we robbing you? We're we're fine. We're good. We're doing, I don't see a problem with us. They are so lost when it comes to understanding the state of their own hearts and what they are doing. 
So God goes on to describe it. And does it just two words. He says tithes and offerings. Tithes is the word for tenth, and offerings is the, it actually comes from the word for wave, which is a particular type of offering. There were certain offerings that you would wave, and that's how you offered them at the temple. And so this is important to understand the passage, right? This, this, kind of, this is not a general call to Israel to just give more. Just give me more stuff. No, he's calling them to fulfill specific obligations they had in the covenant. Part of the covenant stipulations were certain ways of giving, right, that had different purposes. There was this tent that they gave. That was primarily for the support of the Levites. Remember, the Levites weren't given land. They were set apart to serve God in the temple, to teach the people, to lead them in worship. And this was part of God's provision for them, was this tenth. And there's actually a lot, many more other things in this, which is interesting, because when you take this and you use this as kind of the heavy-handed, give one-tenth and beat people over the head with it, Israel actually was required to give much more. If you add up all the different sacrifices and things that they were commanded to give, it was much closer to the 40%. Um, because this funded the temple, this funded the government, it was all sorts of things. It took care of the poor, there's all sorts of these things. There's two tenths actually each year, and there's another tenth that you did on the third and fifth year, and then every seven years you have to lift the land rest. It all just all adds up. There's all these things that govern the way that they were supposed to steward what they have. So these offerings that are mentioned here had three primary purposes. It was to support the Levites, to provide for the temple worship, right? And then to care for the poor. It was very specific. You were given these specific things. This is a particular part of the covenant requirements for you as my people, and you have not done it. God's not saying, I need more from you. He's saying, just do what we do. Fulfill your part of the relationship. Fulfill what I have called you to do. So that, and again, this is not selfish on God's part. God is not, like, desperate for them to do this. He's not hindered by Israel's lack of faithfulness. What he wants them to do is not have to be cursed anymore. This is a gracious, kind call to them. It's like, I don't want you to live like this. I don't want, my heart is for you. So stop doing the things that merit the curse and do it what merits life. And this is really seen in that he calls them, he actually invites them to test him. This is very Interesting, because most of the time when we hear about testing God in Scripture, it's prohibited. It's seen as something very presumptuous and something that no person should get to do. But there's a couple of occasions where God actually invites people and says, test me in this. Test me in this. And it's always regarding something that he has promised. Right? When we test God on our own, the kind of testing that's prohibited is like we're, we're kind of putting a test before God. Well, if you were God, you would do this. We don't get to do that. We don't have that kind of authority. But when God is telling them to do this, he's saying, I 100% keep my promises. I have not been unfaithful at all, and I never will be unfaithful. So see, right? Walk in obedience and see if the blessings don't come. They absolutely will, because I am never unfaithful. If I have promised something, it will be. So the fact that he invites them to test him this, again, just shows his heart. Like, his heart is not, as harsh as this language sounds, it is harsh language to wake them up and to let them see their danger and to call them back from death, back to life, and back to flourishing. The fact is, they're already testing him, right? And they've found him to be faithful, 
in bringing the curses for their disobedience. They've already tested that side of the covenant. And God's saying, stop testing that side. You've seen that I come through on that side. Test the other side. If you walk in my ways, see what it will bring. So guys, to, to boil this passage down, what, what you have to see is that this passage is primarily about the heart of man and the heart of God. The heart of man and the heart of God. And what this passage shows us is that the heart of natural man, our heart, outside of Christ, we are cold and hard and rebellious. Right? We use words like depravity to describe this. We talk about our sinfulness. This is what we mean. Right? We are rebellious by nature, sinful by nature. And in contrast, we see the heart of God here. He is faithful, good, and gracious to his people. Malachi really serves as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament, not just because of where it's located in the canon, but because of what it does. Right? In a lot of ways, it kind of summarizes the Old Testament. What it talks about in this passage is what we've seen from people over and over again in the Old Testament. God tells them what they should do and why it would be good for them. And then they just can't do it. No one does it. No one ever pulls it off over and over and over again for hundreds and hundreds of years. It shows the inadequacy of, of laws and threats to actually create in us real life, real obedience to God. Over and over again, he shows his people what he requires of them. He tells them of the dire consequences for disobedience. And over and over again, what do they do? They rebel, they disobey, they sin. Every time. Over and over and over again. What is addressed here specifically, this, this giving, it's just a fraction of the law, of what they were called to do as God's people, of what God's law demanded for blessing. It's just a fraction of even the giving they were required to do. And yet they're unable to do it. Their hearts are so cold, they're even unable to even muster the ability to see that it's a problem. They're entrenched against it. And this, all of this drives us to the most important realization that we need to see here, right? We, and I mean we, we I mean people, humanity, we will never merit God's blessing or shield ourselves from his judgment by what we do. It doesn't matter how well we are instructed, how often we're reminded. The only thing do this and live can ever bring sinners is judgment. Do this and live is not good news for sinners. It's not. We don't simply need to know what to do, right? Israel knew what to do, and they wouldn't do it. We don't need to be scared straight by the consequences, because that is not enough. We can know what we're supposed to do. We can hear what it means to not do it. And our hearts are so dead in our sin that it will not move us. Law and threat cannot get done in us what needs to be done. There's a much deeper problem underneath what's going on with the tithes and the offerings. And it needs a, deep, a deeper answer. The good thing is that this is no surprise to God. He's not shocked, right? They think, oh, man, they can't do it. Oh, I've got to go to plan B. No. 
No, not at all, right? He has known this has been the case, and this has been preparing us all along. Right? He's been unfolding his plan throughout the Old Testament while he's been exposing our need for it. What we need is a new covenant that works differently. Do this and live isn't going to cut it because we will not do it. We need a covenant that won't depend on what we do and one that won't just tell us what to do externally, but one that deals with our hearts and the source of our action, the very root of what flows out of us. And this is precisely what God has been doing all along through the entire Old Testament, and then we're about to, we're about to reach it in Matthew, right? But there's these beautiful promises that describe it. I'm going to read you one from Ezekiel and one from Jeremiah. Ezekiel 36, we read this. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Do you guys hear how different that is than from where Israel was at? They are so cold, they don't even see their sin. All they're doing is sitting back and thinking about how awful God is. This is so different, right? He's talking about giving us a new heart where when we see our sin, we're heartbroken over it. And, and a covenant that doesn't demand that we fix our sin, but that actually fixes it for us. It changes, it covers it, it washes us clean. Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. It's huge. It's a different kind of covenant. That's really good for us. The same kind does us no good. Just a new way to fail. Right? Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it out on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Again, just the different language around the other thing. There's going to be a different kind of covenant that actually forgives sin, that doesn't say do this and live, but that covers all those failings, right? And then changes us, changes the inside, the root of us. The law, rather than standing outside condemning us, will be engraved on our heart and our desires will start to shift and change to where we are not cold against sin, but that we love the things that God loves and hates the things that he hates. Church, the old covenant demanded of us what we cannot do what no one could do. This new one that God will provide will just will give us what we need, what we actually need as sinful people. It won't simply tell us to stop sinning. Stop it. It will provide forgiveness for sinners. It won't just tell us to be righteous. It will clothe us in perfect righteousness. It will just tell us to be different. It will actually change and transform our stony hearts into hearts 
of flesh. This is the new covenant. That's what's being described there. And the new covenant comes in the person of Jesus. This is what we are waiting for, longing for. This is what the whole Old Testament is building for, right? All these failures are pointing us to the fact that we need something different. We need righteousness, but it's not going to come from us. It's going to come from outside of us. So Jesus comes, the Son of God, and what does he do? He lives a perfect, flawless life. He gives everything that God asks him to give of himself. He's perfect in thought, word, deed, motivation. He never fails once. And then on the heels of that kind of life, what does he do? He goes to a cross. And he dies the death that a traitor should die. The most horrific death. And he does that not for himself because he does not deserve that death. He was the only one who was actually faithful. He's the only one who didn't rebel. Because that righteous life and that death were not for himself. He didn't need either one of them. You needed them. I needed them. They were for us. The righteousness that he lived was him standing in our stead, doing what we could not do. He clothes us in his righteousness when we are united to him by faith. So that do this and live no longer depends on us. It looks to Christ who has done it and had one life. And then that atoning death. He didn't need an atoning death. He had nothing to atone for. But he went and he bore the wrath of God for every sin, every failure. He took it on himself. He drank God's wrath to the dregs so that there would be none left for you. Christian, don't, this this is so unbelievable. This is why we call it gospel. It is good in the purest sense. United to Christ by faith in this new covenant, it is actually unjust for God to condemn you. It would be a violation of his holiness and his goodness and his character, of his righteousness, to condemn you. Because what you have done has already been paid for. That justice has already been meted out in the person of Jesus Christ. The new covenant is a covenant of grace, right? Where we are given as a gift what somebody else has earned. The person of Jesus Where we were marked by constant rebellion, he is marked by perfect obedience. Where we were stingy towards God, he gave all of himself as the perfect sacrifice to God to atone for our sin. He bore the curse of our disobedience so we could enjoy blessings that he won. That's what this passage is meant to drive us to. It's not go give enough to make God happy with you. You can't do it. It will not work. It's, no, realize how stingy you are towards her. Realize your sinful heart and thank God for Jesus. That's what the point of this passage is. But I do want to talk to you guys about what giving looks like in this new covenant, right? Because the law, I want to, there's, we need to see a couple different aspects of God's law. One of the things that God's law should do, and when I say God's law, I just mean the things he tells us to do. One of the things it does is it shows us our unrighteousness, right? It shows us that we need Jesus, right? Paul calls it a schoolmaster. It's meant to drive us to Christ for mercy and grace, right? That's one of the things it does. But that's not all it does, right? It also 
now that we are freed from its burden and its weight because of the work of Christ, it now serves as a helpful guide to us as Christians who've been given hearts of flesh, who now want to honor God, who now believe what God says is good for us to do with our lives is actually good and that we should pursue it because he's a good God. And what he calls us to do is not arbitrary. He's not just trying to be a pain in the neck. He's trying to lead us into life and flourishing. So we believe those things now. So when he calls us to give, we see we can't do enough. We trust Christ. That's good. But giving is good. When God called Israel to give, it wasn't just some arbitrary thing. It wasn't because he needed it. He called them to do it because it was good for them. And that carries forth. Now that we're free from our failure in it, we need to see what it looks like in our freedom in Christ. First and foremost, we're not under the specific requirements of the Old Covenant in terms of giving, right? We don't have to pay all those specific gifts and everything that were under the Old Covenant. Jesus fulfilled that Old Covenant. We're under a different covenant. Those are not ours to pay, right? Also, giving does no longer merits us temporal blessing, right? That was part of the Old Covenant as well. That was for flourishing in the land of Canaan for that people. That covenant's been fulfilled. It's gone. We're not under that covenant, Right? So that is not how this works. Israel had to give to secure God's blessing and avoid his curse. But for us, Jesus has secured God's blessing for us. And he's taken the curse. But this does not render giving unimportant. Right? And I, we can't look at everything. I'm not going to try and do a whole theology of giving. But I think there's a couple very, very key things that change, show you the changed nature of how we think about this. Right? Why we don't need a specific benchmark. I don't need to sit up here and yell at you to give 10% or 40% or any other number, right? Because this is different now. And I think a great place to see this is in Matthew 6. Matthew 6, verse 19. There we read this. Matthew, uh, it says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Guys, this points us to what I've been hinting at all along, that God calls us to give because we need it. Right? It does things in us that are good for us. It's a little bit like when I have my kids help me out with projects around the house. They are five and three. So when I invite them to help me out with projects on the house, it's generally not because they're going to go quicker or better or more efficiently because they help. Uh, it's usually the opposite. Um, so if you were smiling, you know what I'm talking about, right? Um, but you know what it is good for? They love it. They get to be part of what daddy's doing, and it's great, Right? That's a little bit, that's part of what our giving is like, right? God does not need something from us. He doesn't call us to do this because he needs it. He calls us to do it because we need it, and it's good for us. And there's two particular ways we see that from this passage in Matthew that I think really shape the rest of it. I think from these two things, you can really think about this well and differently. And the first is that the way we use our resources, this is beyond money, this is your time, your talents, all that you have, all that you've been given, all that you've been entrusted with as a steward by God. The way we use those things trains our hearts and affections. It trains our hearts and affections. Jesus says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
I think we tend to think about it in reverse. Well, that's the way we think it most naturally goes. Where your heart is, there your treasure goes. But this flip is very important. Jesus says that what we invest ourselves in, what we give ourselves to, is going to actually shape our affections. If you invest yourself, whatever you invest yourself in, whatever you throw yourself into, your time, your money, your resources, your affection, your love for that thing is going to grow. This is pretty, this is pretty huge, right? Like, we think about our affections as kind of this thing that just happens. But God says, no, they, he has put something, embedded something in us, and we train what we love. We train what we love. It's a little bit like the, the saying, the grass is green on the side you water. This is a little bit like that, right? Whatever you pour yourself into, you are going to love and you are going to care about. So when God calls us to give, generously, sacrificially, all these sorts of things, what, do we, what is one of the things we need to do? We need our hearts to love the right things. When we love the wrong things, it leads to death and destruction. Loving the right things leads to flourishing. And so by calling us to give to things that we ought to love, things that we should love, things that we should be invested, things that we should pour ourselves into, he's doing this to train our hearts so that our affections will go towards things that we should love and not towards idolatry. Right? This is why it is good to love your wife, to invest in your kids. You are supposed to love those things. Do it. This is why it is good to give to your church. You should love your church. Christ loves your church. Right? This is why it's good to help those in need. We're called to love our neighbor. As you give to your neighbor, your affection for them will increase. Right? So this is a huge thing. We don't wait for some magical weird thing to happen and like oh now suddenly i want to give no we we give because god says it's good and we should love these things so we invest ourselves in them and we trust him to bring our heart along through that this is big right because if we just kind of do what we feel like we're a lot of times we're not going to feel like doing the thing that is best for us and good for us unless you guys maybe you guys are just way more spiritual better people than i am like that's not how it works for me right usually the best things are things that take effort. They take an intentional sacrifice. Gravity usually is pulling me towards something else. And this is a beautiful thing. God calls us to give because he uses that to shape and change our hearts and calls us to love what is right to love. And we all need that. And the other aspect of this is that is an incredible privilege of, of being able to give is that we now... In Christ, we have the privilege of using temporal things, our time here, our money here, our resources here. We can use our temporal things to invest in things that are eternal, right? We can use, we're here for a blip, right? 70 years, whatever, give or take 20. Who knows? Who knows? But then this is gone. But then we have a whole eternity that's coming after this, right? Right? by allowing us to invest in the kingdom of God, right? By inviting us into that. We are allowed to use temporal things that are going to fade, that are going to pass, and we can now invest them in things that will go on forever, right? When I, we're called to love each other within the church, right? Well, guess what? You guys are my family forever. Like, we're going to die. Some of us are going to move. All that stuff's going to happen. If you're in Christ, you are my family forever. These are relationships that are going to continue and endure forever. So when I love you, when I care about you, when I invest in caring for you, that is not lost even by death. That thing is valuable. Imagine you live in the South 
and it's 1865, right? Last year of the Civil War, for those of you who aren't history buffs, right? You've got a bunch of Confederate money, and you've got a chance to trade it in for Union money. Is that a good deal? Yes. That Confederate money is going to be worth nothing in months. Literally, you're better off starting fires with it in months. But if you have the chance to trade it in for money that you could still use now, 150 years later, that's a good deal, right? If you can trade what is going to fade in the blink of an eye for something that will endure and last, that is an incredible privilege and gift. And this is what we get to do with our lives, church. Our lives are filled with meaning because we get to glorify God with them. When we spend ourselves for the things that he says is good, loving God and loving our neighbor. How Christ boils it down. When we spend ourselves towards those ends, that is not lost. That is not time lost. That is not money lost. Whatever it looks like here, whatever it feels like in the moment, it is not lost. It is an investment in what is going to go on forever. So we have a chance to use this, this life that is like a vapor. It's like a blink of an eye. And do things with it that endure. That is an incredible, incredible gift. And when we see giving that way, right? When we see this call to give, it's like, man, I have the chance to take what is going to disappear and, and invest it into something that will last and endure and carry on into the new heavens and the new earth and the eternity I'm going to share with God. Like, what an incredible privilege. And, and that when I can realize I can use this stuff to have my heart reshaped so that I love things that are actually worth loving. Like, this is incredible. So now we don't ask questions like, how much do I have to give? Because I guarantee you that's what Israel's asking, right? What's, what is the bare minimum I have to do to keep God off my back or to get him to make the rainfall so my crops come? That's what they're asking. This completely flips that paradigm upside down. If, if this is what giving of ourselves really is about, we're not asking how much do I have to do. We're, we're looking like, we're just looking in the couch for pennies that we can throw into this, right? Like, we want to put as much of it as we can into what will last and what will endure and what will shape our hearts into what is life-giving and good. Amazon went public in 1997. And if you had bought $1,000 worth of Amazon stock at the IPO, it would be worth about $2.3 million now. It's a good return on investment, right? Now, if you could take us back to 1997, right? What would we be doing? If we were in 1997 with this knowledge, how would we be treating this Amazon, stomach, uh, Amazon stock coming out? Would we be like, okay, uh, I, guess uh, I guess I can put five bucks in it if I have to. No, man, we'd be, we'd be emptying. We'd be in the car, digging through the old McDonald's fries, looking for the pennies and the nickel. Everything we'd be throwing into that, right? Because it was so clearly worth it and so obvious. And, and we have something better than that church, right? You are going to spend yourself on something. Your time is going to get spent. Your money is going to get spent or passed on. Your talents, your giftings are getting spent on something. Because of the work of Christ, we don't have to use those things to try to get God off our back or to try to earn anything from him. We have been given all that we need in Christ. And that liberates us and that frees us to use these things and to spend these things 
not in a way that is wasted, but in a way that has eternal value and shapes something far more precious than money, like our hearts, after the things that God say lead to life and flourishing. And of course, (laughs) underline all of this, the one who calls us to give, the one who says that it's good to give, and to give in these ways, he's the one who gives it all to us in the first place, right? All the time you have, all the money you have, all those talents you have, they came from him initially. So all that he calls you to give is what he has given in the first place. It all flows from him. Right, and this is one of the things that communion reminds us of so well, which we're going to partake of this morning as we do every week, church. Communion reminds us that everything we need before God does not come from us, but it comes from him. All right, and that's why we have this meal, to remind us, to ground us in that, so that we would not be tempted to think that we can go out this week and spend our time, our talents, our money, and somehow manipulate God into working for me in a particular way, right? No, God has worked for you already in Christ and provided everything we need, and that's why we take this meal. That's why he gave it to us, to ground us in that, so we would not be tempted to run back to the old way. So church, if you would stand with me, We are going to sing, and we're going to receive the elements. Uh, They are at tables along the back. Uh, There are two cups stacked together. The top one has bread. The bottom one has wine or juice. Uh, Purple is juice. Clear is wine. Uh, So you just need to take one stack. After we finish singing, I'll come up and lead us through uh, receiving the supper together. One last note. Um, This meal is for Christ's church, for those who are united to him by faith. Uh, This is not for everyone. If you are here and that is not you, um, we, would not, we ask you to abstain, not because we don't love you, not because we don't want good for you. Uh, we don't want you to be confused and to think that you are receiving something that you're not. Uh, I'd be happy to talk to you about that. Come up and find me. Um, but it's, we say that out of love for you, uh, not because we want to withhold anything. But this is a meal for the family of God. If your faith and trust is in Jesus Christ, this meal is for you. So as we sing, go receive the elements.